You are listening to the Cycling Podcast at the 2022 Vuelta España, powered by Super Sapiens, energy management for committed athletes and coaches. Today we are in Alicante. Hello, buenas tardes from La Vuelta a España. My name is Daniel Freiber. I'm the host of tonight's episode. And as you heard from our friend Rob Hatch, I am in Alicante. And joining me tonight from Villefranche-sur-Mer, he's moved. He's no longer in Traverse City. I got, I got beef. I can't believe that I got abuse for my pronunciation of Traverse. How could I possibly get that wrong? Anyway, maybe he can, light, he can enlighten me in a minute. He's in Villefranche-sur-Mer in France. He is current AG2R Citroën professional veteran of four Vuelta España, also a Tour de Suisse stage winner, 2017 US National Road Race champion. It's the ghost, the spectre, the phantom of the 2012 late summer season, the man with a smile to winning for radio. It's lucky Larry Warbass. How are you, son? Hey, Daniel. Yeah, doing well. Glad to be here. Uh, yeah, nice to be back on the podcast and... Yeah, nice to be back in France as well. Okay, Larry, Traverse City. Surely that is how it's pronounced. Yeah, it's it's Traverse, Traverse City. Kind of like, imagine instead of, because I know it's spelled like Traverse, but like you pronounce it as if it were just like uh, Traverse, like, um, you know, like if there wasn't an E at the end, like Traverse, you know, Traverse City. So you kind of like blend the two, you know? You're a bu- Does that make yeah, sense? Yeah, not really, not really. Um, I think you're, okay. you're a bunch of, uh, of, of... You know, you know. I was maybe just preparing for France because it's just, you know, some silent letters in there. You kind of skip the S. Yeah, absolute heathens as far as I'm concerned. Anyway, um, Larry, um, next question I had for you. The next thing I was going to tell you. Last night, we're staying in a pretty nice restaurant in Elche, which is where the stage started today. Um, on a lovely poolside terrace, in fact, we had our dinner last night. And at the table next to us was my good friend, as mentioned earlier in the Vuelta España, Manuel Quinziato, the one of the men. Oh, really? One of the men <laughs> responsible for branding you a ghost for your lack of involvement or your, your lack of... I don't know what he expected from you, but in those first appearances for BMC back in 2012, um, I know you patched it up after that, And but I, I should have, and I will in fact, because Manuel will be on the race for a few days, I think, he also lives near here, um, I will get his version of Larry Warbus's three months as a BMC soigneur, uh, soigneur stagiaire. <laughs> yeah. What do you think? Okay, that sounds good. I'll be interested to hear what he has what to you, say. He'll probably yeah, laugh. Yeah, what do you think he'll say? Is time a gentleman, as Gianni Savio always tells us? Yeah, I think, you know, I think, uh, I hope he remembers me fondly, so, so we'll see. But yeah. Well, Larry, you're not in Traverse City. I am sitting alongside what was the finish line about up to about an hour ago. As you can probably hear, this is a, the traditional backing track to cycling podcast episodes. It's the, well, it's the sound of the, the Vuelta España being dismantled um, in front of my eyes and your ears. Um, the, well, the rain has started to fall. We'll hear a lot today about the weather, not about rain, because it wasn't raining today, but it was extremely humid, filthy humid, and we'll hear a bit about that. But yeah, the rain is beginning to fall over Alicante. But, well, we had a time trial today, won by Remco Vanderpool, the race leader, um, in an even stronger position as of this evening. We're going to have another time trial now. It is the stage summary time trial. Larry Warbass. Yeah, I'm ready. First, we'll hear from Rob Hatch. 
El resumen del día a contrarreloj. The stage summary time trial. And next, you will hear from Larry Warbass. Larry, three, two, one. Off you go. Okay, I'm confident I can do this uh, time trial faster than Remco. So uh, today was stage 10, uh, an individual time trial from LK to Alicante. LK, LK, uh, you, give, you give me grief for traveling. You call it LK. Okay. 30. <laughs> hey, don't take my time away. 30, this is individual time trial. 30.9 kilometers. Uh, yeah, LK, sorry. Uh, the winner was uh, the red jersey, Remco Evenepoel. He averaged 55.7k an hour over the distance, which is pretty insane. Um, second, Roglic. Uh, third, Remy Cavagna. And fourth, Carlos Rodriguez, which was a really impressive ride by him. Um, interesting note today, there were eight non-starters due to COVID, so that's pretty crazy. I think uh, we're going to see, yeah, a little bit more issues uh, coming in the Vuelta. And yeah, Remco extends his lead in the red jersey. Uh, Primo's moved up to second. Uh, third overall is Enric Mas, who also, I would believe, did a really good time trial today, finishing 10th. Uh, maybe it's their new helmets on Movistar. Uh, and yeah, Carlos Rodriguez stay fourth. So, interesting. It's funny you mentioned Movistar helmets, because I've been hearing a bit about them as well in the last few days from a loyal listener who I won't name, who I don't think, well, he's heavily involved in in the sort of aerodynamics time trialing world, and he hasn't been too, en- okay. too enamored with the Movistar helmets up until now but maybe yeah maybe they had a new tool a new trick up their sleeve today did they Larry? Well yeah I think it debuted maybe at the start of the Vuelta Um, but yeah I know it's not just the outsiders who are uh, a little bit concerned with their equipment but you know The, the, the time is up, by the way, but you did very well, Larry. You came in well inside. Oh, well, I mean, I finished, re- you know. Reflecting the general lack of talking points um, after time trials, which is always <laughs> something that a Malays, particular Malays that I suffer from. Um, Larry, you mentioned the non-starters today. Let's just list them, shall we? Uh, Yared Drizners of Lotto Sudal. Yared. Yared. Yared Drizners. He's Australian. Yeah. I think Jared, Jared is probably how you pronounce it, but um, that's okay. Um, <laughs> we'll, we'll go easy on the Jose, pronunciations. Jose Herrada of Cofidis, Eduardo Fini of Jumbo Visma, Floris de Tier from Alpacin de Koenig, um, Harry Sweeney of Lotto Sudal, Ethan Hayter, who would have been one of the favourites for today's stage. He didn't start either. Sam Bennett mm. and the mega milkshake, uh, Matthias Norsgaard of Movistar, um, who was out through covid i believe we were quite concerned about that i was quite concerned about that because well not least um i was concerned for his health but also because he comes into the mix zone every day stands next to pretty much next to me adjacent to me when he's being interviewed by tv2 the danish tv crew um however he is about three meters tall so any droplets or any aerosols um they they waft they waft Uh safely above my head um, I would suggest. Okay, so, that's so, good. Yeah. And yeah. I also had a COVID test today and it was negative. So, Larry, um, well, we Perfect. will, in the second part, we will discuss 
Remco Roglic in greater detail. But I thought it, it would be worth just hearing from a couple of the Spaniards you mentioned in their native tongue. We don't do that too often um, on the, the one-man cycling podcast in Spain anyway because I don't have time to dub the interviews. But here we'll hear a bit of Enric Mas. At first, he had no idea how he'd done. Um, he, but he said he was pretty happy when he first found out when they first the radio journalist gave him the time gaps. He said he really hurt himself. And he knew that Vanderpool was absolutely flying, um, but he said there's a long way to go. We're only on stage 10. Then he sort of changed his mind halfway through the interview. He said he wasn't super satisfied, but it was okay. Um, he started well and paid for that in the end. And then Carlos Rodriguez, the other well, Spaniard who had a really good day today. Juan Ayuso Lesso. We'll talk. We'll talk about him maybe later in the episode, but. Um, Carlos Rodriguez he was pretty conservative it was funny I noticed Larry in all of the Ineos Grenadiers riders interviews they all talked about being conservative in the first half so that was obviously an edict that had been sent out by the coaches Um, he was pretty conservative with the watts he said but it worked well because he didn't go into the red and then he finished pretty strongly I think the the time gaps reflected that in the end but um, there was a lot of excitement about Rodriguez at the finish um, it's, it's turning into a good Vuelta España for the Spanish and you can feel it and, you know here in Alicante this afternoon there was a big Colombian presence huge Colombian presence we often get that in the big cities at the Vuelta but also also just the, the level of kind of recognition for these emerging new riders you can sense it you hear kids um, shouting their name, I saw. Um, I posted a picture on Twitter. I saw a kid with a with a handmade, a wonderful handmade sign at the finish line today. I want to be like Mark Soler when I grow up. A message that we can all identify with, I would say. Um, but I did, Larry. I mentioned the conditions today, and we'll hear from three riders now um, who all did pretty well. I would say pretty creditably. Would you agree, Larry? Um, Theo Gagenhart, Ben O'Connor and Lawson Craddock. Lawson Craddock in particular did a great ride. He was 6th today. Theo Gagenhart, 8th, also a very good ride. 1 minute 46 down. And Ben O'Connor, your teammate, 12th at 1.53 yeah. down. Um, should, well, should we hear from that troika now? So in order, it's Theo, then Ben O'Connor, then Lawson Craddock. And listen out for some diverging opinions about the conditions today. Uh, yeah, it was all right. A start conservatively but quite on it um, often I struggle to do a good first few K's in TT's but today I think was actually pretty good certainly from the feeling anyway so I don't know <laughs> creeps up on you but that's the same with all TT's in the end so yeah it was alright Sticky obviously Tay. I mean I'm pretty uncomfortable I guess out there in a, in a skin suit yeah, I wouldn't call it sticky it's just wet but to be honest every day we've had in the last week was soaking wet even in Astorius and Cantabria for sure you can't see it on TV or hear it in a podcast but uh, was we were dripping like really crazy like in a jungle um, and today was more of the same no like solar radiation um, but yeah high humidity uh, very similar to Tokyo actually Legs still feeling, I mean, you came in not 100%, but feeling pretty good. Today? Yeah, generally, like, compared to the start of the Vuelta. Yeah, I think so. I don't know. I mean, it's 10 days into a race, so we were having this discussion earlier on the bus. I wouldn't say there's much point comparing to anything. That's the whole point of a Grand Tour, that it's unique. 
um, with everything and definitely with time trials and long climbs because anything that you think you can do or think you can't do can change in a, in a grand tour so yeah we'll see how the next days go oh, it's a filthy idea it's like it's like being in a rainforest but it doesn't look like green at all it just looks terrible actually so yeah pretty horrible out here so hopefully it's a little bit cool the next couple of days I know it won't be yeah I feel really fast I was so blind at the end though I didn't finish very well but uh yeah, I don't actually know. I have no idea how I've gone, so hopefully it was good. Lawson, time trials are always uncomfortable, but how much more uncomfortable does this humidity make it? Oh, man. This isn't humid at all. And uh, I come from Texas, and uh, there, you know, I, I spent the summer there the, this year after the Giro, training for the Nationals and also training for the Welter, and, and there I was uh, up on the bike at 7 a.m., and there it's already 30 degrees and 98% humidity. So, uh, actually, this is quite a warm welcome. Uh, Michael Hepburn, he he went uh, a bit earlier than I did and he texted the group and said, hey guys, wear, wear gloves. I was so sweaty, my hands kept falling off the bars and I just kind of scoffed. I was like, I don't know what these guys are talking about. It's not a, not a drop of moisture in the air, it feels like. The Cycling Podcast at the 2022 Vuelta España, powered by Super Sapiens. Energy management for committed athletes and coaches. Still guessing on fueling? Not sure what or when to eat and drink on rides that matter? Never again. Optimize your fueling strategy with real-time glucose data, actionable insights, and personalized analytics. We're here to help you achieve your performance goals. Go to supersapiens.com for more on how to track your energy levels and fuel for success. Thank you very much to Super Sapiens, our title sponsors. We've been hearing from Sam Brand, who rides for Team Novo Nordisk. And like all the riders on the team, Sam is a type 1 diabetic, and so he monitors his glucose levels continually. Recently, he rode the Tour of Poland, World Tour race, of course, and on day one was in a break of five riders, three of whom were Polish. And Sam was the second last to be caught around 12 kilometers from the line. He was actually away with Kamil Malecki of Lotto Sudar, one of the Polish riders. They were the last two to be caught. And, well, he's been telling the story of his big day in the break. Well, yeah, I mean, we actually probably got a bit further than I thought. I thought the peloton might come a bit earlier but then there was some guys skipping turns and then um the lot of Sudal, uh, guy wanted to stay away obviously uh he's from poland as well so he had a vested interest to be there for me um there wasn't as such trying to keep it to the end um i was being shouted at uh not in a negative way in a positive way um by my ds to make sure that i saved energy you know because I picked up bonus seconds, so if I was to, to stay with the group to the end, then we'd have good position uh, for the following day, which we did. I finished uh, with the group, and it was sort of top five on GC in a World Tour race uh, after stage one, so something fantastic for the team, fantastic for me, and uh, a great experience. I mean, it would have been nice to try and keep it going to the end, but I think with the collaboration between us, it all broken down at that point. It was just a, uh, just a fire, 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 which is fantastic, you know, pure bike race and apps love it but then I realized that probably best to sit off him take a few minutes whilst the group came back to me which gave me a two three minutes more recovery I was able to stick with the group and, and hang in there uh, actually, I actually don't know the results so 48 seconds over people's whole beach 48 well it's that's a big surprise uh, I saw that my teammate Remy did very well and uh, actually it was perfect that he that he did such a good time trial for me to know uh, the good times because 
when I was still sitting in the bus, I could see that um, everybody was actually slowing down in the second part uh, compared to his time. So, yeah, I mean, uh, I knew I just had to push like one power all the time because it's flat with a super hard finish. And uh, well, my legs were so heavy on this last time. It was actually really, really hard, but um, super nice to win this time trial in the red jersey. It's an amazing feeling. Well, that was the man of the day, Remco Evenepoel. And well, as per tradition, should we also hear from the other man of the day, I suppose, or at least the guy who came closest to Remco Evenepoel. And I think most would agree he is closest or most probable antagonist on the general classification. El Diario Roglic. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, I'm happy about it. Huh? It's uh, nothing uh, that I can uh, say. Uh, it's a nice time trial. Proud of it, definitely. Uh, and uh, yeah, uh, nice result. Huh? And uh, big congrats yeah, for Emco, really uh, on different level at the moment. Yeah, I mean, uh, if you're every year here, yeah, sooner or later you also lose. Huh? Yeah, when you're not here, you don't, you cannot lose. Uh, so uh, yeah. Uh, Definitely, uh, he's, uh, he's flying at the moment. But uh, yeah, we'll see a uh, long race. And uh, like I said, uh, for myself, uh, I'm uh, happy and proud about it. It is how it is. It's, sometimes it's cold, sometimes it's hot. But uh, like I said, really, really uh, happy about today's uh, performance. Well, Larry, first of all, what did you, what did you make of, well, particularly Primoz Roglic, um, sounding a bit like, I haven't seen The Lion King, but he sounded a bit like an old lion. I think the old lion in The Lion King is called Scar. And the young line is called Simba. Uh-huh. I mean, is, is Primoz the scar and Remco the Simba of this Vuelta Spain? You see, you know, he talks about being proud there, but also sounded slightly resigned. He said, you know, Remco's on a different level. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think he was just trying to be uh, polite. Um, you know, I mean, it definitely sounded like he was content with his, uh, with his ride today, which I think he should be. And I think he's aware that um, you know, Remco clearly is on another level and when he's climbing the way he is I think everyone expected what we saw today in terms of the time trial because he's so compact and like petite aerodynamic that uh, when you have that much power on the climbs and you're that small like on the flat you're going to fly so um, you know I think it was kind of yeah it was just that was almost inevitable that Remco was going to win today so I think no one was surprised and I think uh you know, but you could hear that Remco, or sorry, not Remco, um, Roglic, you know, I think he, he's still waiting. You know, I think he knows more than anyone that, uh, you know, fortunes can change at any moment. So um, I think he was proud because he did his best effort. You know, he did a really good job beating everyone else. Um, and he moved into second. And yeah, I think for him, you know, he's, he's aware that anything could happen on any day. And uh yeah, uh, cycling is a fickle sport, so, you know, I think he's just going to keep trucking away and uh, not get too stressed about anything because, yeah, I mean, who knows, Remco, he could continue to fly, but he could very well crack as well, so. I mean, this whole issue, this whole prospect of Remco cracking, I mean, that is that is pretty much what has to happen now. I think most people would agree. The, the advantage on general classification now is significant, but... I mean, yesterday, Larry, at our team hotel, we're staying in the same hotel as a couple of teams, and I was um, chatting to 
a team a physiologist um, who I won't name um, although he doesn't have any skin in the game um, but he I asked him I asked him to, you know to just walk me through to just talk me through how we all know it can happen and we've seen it happen a million times but what is the sort of physiological process whereby a guy can I don't know be be pushing 440 watts for half an hour um, one day and then the next day they're down at 370 and they're losing minutes how does that occur and I must confess I didn't fully understand the explanation um, oh really okay yeah what, what, what I mean, would you I say think in layman's terms though any anything can happen you know I mean humans are fragile like uh you know, you could get sick, you could, you know, even you could get sick without even really realizing it, right? You don't necessarily have to have, like, all these symptoms. I think one thing we found, you know, with all of the events of the last few years is that, like, you know, um, sickness can show itself in many different forms. And so, yeah, maybe you could develop some sort of virus that you weren't even really aware of at, like, a, you know, high level. Maybe you're not sneezing and coughing, but it could really affect you physiologically right so you could all of a sudden one day be flying the next day not you know there's so many things maybe you could get like a a mild low grade um you know food poisoning or something so there's so many different things that can happen um that you're not even almost aware of on the surface and uh, that can really affect your performance i mean okay in the end you can crack as well but like i think if you're really dialed i almost don't think that's going to happen because like we're so at least I think, you know, a lot of the big teams that are really focused on these things, you know, the nutrition is so dialed, everything's so calculated that like, hopefully, you know, you won't crack. And, and actually, this was kind of an interesting thing. Uh, when I was at altitude this year training for the Vuelta, uh, <laughs> Jai Hindley was uh, at my hotel. So we were talking to him and, and you know, asking him a few things about, um, you know, I guess we were talking about nutrition and all these things, fueling in races. And he said, you know, the one thing he was so confident in uh, was they were so calculated with his nutrition in the Giro that he went into every stage knowing that he was at least as well, if not better fueled than all of his teammates. So like, or sorry, than all of his competitors. So, you know, he knew that he was eating exactly the right quantity. So he knew in his head, like he wasn't going to crack. So, you know, I think these grand explosions have more to do with other things than just a natural occurrence you know i think it's like some sort of outside factors and in the end it can also be mental too um so yeah yeah um on the other hand the the same people that sort of say and i think kind of hopefully it's it's funny how we we always tend to adopt the kind of position of the underdog or we always sort of support the underdog halfway through a grand tour simply because we want maximum suspense we want to see things turn around and um, you know those people who do want Primoz Roglic to turn this around and again you know the same gentleman I was speaking to yesterday um, he, he could definitely foresee Roglic getting a bit better and I actually I was pretty encouraged by the way Roglic finished the time trial today I mean obviously strategy came into it and we mentioned earlier that Ineos certainly had decided to ride conservatively at the start of the time trial and finished strongly and Roglic finished well um, too I mean is that an encouraging sign Um, yeah but I think you know everyone has such dialed pacing strategies now and the other thing is is like the end of the time trial there was like it was a super fast tailwind section on the coast and then there was the climb so you know 
if someone like Roglic potentially has like you know an unreal position, maybe like the faster you're going, the as in the higher the speed, the more that aerodynamic advantage is going to help him. Um, so you know, I I don't know. It's kind of hard to like read into that if that's like you know he just paced it perfectly or he just was feeling stronger at the end. You know, I think pretty much uh, everything is. I guess like uh, pre-planned, and so maybe he just had a better pacing strategy. I don't know. Um, yeah, so it's interesting. It's complicated with time trials. <laughs> Larry, I want to talk now about equipment. Words you don't often hear on the cycling podcast. Let's talk about equipment first. First, yeah. I would like to ask you. Well, you already touched on it, but the Movistar helmets. Let's discuss the Movistar helmets. Well, okay. I mean, I know that, like, uh, Movistar struggled for a long time. If you saw the helmets, some of them are still wearing them. There's not many guys with the new one. Maybe there's two or three guys in the race. Um, and, you know, I know, like, the crazy thing is, is that equipment makes an enormous difference, especially in time trials. So the helmet is like a gigantic thing. The skin suit is a huge thing. And then, you know, the bike and wheels and tires all matter. So um, something like having a helmet that's not very good can make an enormous difference over the course of a 30-kilometer time trial, you know? Uh, I mean, I'm not an expert on, like, aerodynamics, and I haven't calculated this, but I would assume from a good helmet to a bad helmet, it could probably be a minute, maybe even more, which is pretty crazy uh, if you think about it. Um, so... You know, they used to have this, or some of the guys still have this short, stubby helmet that, like, Sky had, you know, many yep. years ago. And when Sky had it, everyone thought, oh, that must be the best. So then all these other brands started to make these short helmets. And in the end, we later found out that wasn't really uh, that fast. So, um, you know, and I think it's also as positions have evolved now, everyone's getting a lot higher on the bike rather than being super low and stuff like that. So... Um, you know, I don't know if is one thing it's kind of interesting is if you look at, okay, now the specialized helmets also, but all the Ineos guys, they have these gigantic helmets now. Uh, so a lot of them are riding like these XL helmets, you know, like they're literally size extra large because what they found is like, if that closes the gap between your head and your shoulders, uh, you know, it can make you sort of like a more aerodynamic unit. So, um, I think you can look just how much equipment makes a difference this year in Aos. Uh, they hired Dan Bigham, who obviously just set the hour record um, to be their like performance engineer, essentially do, do, to be in charge of making them go faster. Know, it, Sorry, it was, it was very notable um, to a complete. I talked about heathens earlier. I'm a complete time trial heathen. It was very noticeable how aerodynamic at least their riders looked to me, and they looked significant. You know, if I think of um, Pavel Sivakov riding time trials. In the past, the image that comes to my mind's eye is not the image that, of someone who was very, looked very good and very compact um, that I saw today. And the same, was, the same is true of Carlos Rodriguez. Yeah, you know, I think, like, that team has progressed enormously this year. Um, and I really think that's, like, uh, thanks to Dan Bigham. Uh, and, you know, you can also see just... He's not, he's not even, you know, he, he's a staff member at Ineos and he set the hour record. So obviously he knows a lot about, you know, what he's doing. Um, so you take these guys who already have huge engines and you optimize them. Um, and I think like, yeah, it's the best thing you can do. I'm just surprised that it took them so long to hire someone like that. So, yeah, I mean, it's just crazy, you know, things like equipment, like if you... Look also, Bike Exchange this year, they've been going really well. Well, one thing they did, I know, is like their skin suits cost like yes. 4,000 or 6,000 euros. You know, they're insane. Uh, 
And so, yeah, it's just like there's all these little things. I mean, I don't know if you need like a 6,000 euro skin suit to go fast, but um, I mean, it probably doesn't hurt, but uh, you know, it's just, it's crazy all these little details and these teams that you see are really investing a lot. They're making a lot of progress. So um, yeah, I think that's why you see there's a lot of the same rider, you know, a lot of riders from the same team at the top of the leaderboard. And just on that, Larry, I know that Remco Vanderpool, well, that he was sporting today the the super snood the the soft what, what what is the yes. what's the what's the technical term larry please oh i don't actually know uh <laughs> all i know is that it's supposed to smooth out like uh the area correct, around the face correct. to make you faster and so, this is so, this yeah. has divided opinion from an aesthetic point of view but i believe it's also divided opinion in the team in fact we saw that at the tour de france when Yves lampart took the yellow jersey on the first day and he wasn't wearing the super snood um but remco yes. was today and he's apparently one of the riders who who liked it and also was seen to derived the most benefit from it when the team tested that that piece of equipment at Morgan Hill Specialized Headquarters um, in the winter. So my colleague uh, Jan-Peter de Vliga from um, Het Newsblad was telling me today, Jan-Peter was also telling me that Remco is now on 170 millimeter cranks. He was previously on 172.5 millimeters. That's a change we often, yeah. well, the riders often play around with this um, throughout the duration of their career. And again, it, it seems to me to be slightly trend driven there are periods when people are going longer there are periods when people tend to be going shorter you know, Remco's certainly gone shorter they also they also had some um, very very I'm told aerodynamic socks today which had dimples which had grooves um, and which are also sort of tailored and curated according to the shape of the rider's calf I mean is that is that does that sound plausible Larry? I mean, that definitely sounds plausible. I mean, I don't think that's that crazy to, like, tighten the, the socks a well, bit. Well, no, they had... I it's actually something I... They had dim, dim, They had more dimples or more lines or more grooves or whatever the terminology yeah, is, I mean, Larry, according to whether someone had, you know, thick ankles, big cankles, or dainty, elegant ankles. Yeah, I mean, yeah, for sure that could definitely make a difference. But the thing that I actually noticed today, I was looking at... Um, you know, just a lot of the different riders on different teams. And, um, you know, like, I don't know if you know that there's this rule that says, like, the shoe covers and or your socks can't be higher than halfway up your, like, the distance between your ankle and your knee. So this is a UCI rule, yeah. which, um, because, like, you know, I know, like, on the UK time trial scene, all these people wear, like, full length, you know, um, socks, kind of, yeah, right? Yeah. Because it's a little bit more aero. Well, it's kind of funny because you can see the difference between certain teams that are really thinking about this a lot and others that aren't. So I noticed that like Miles Scottson on FDJ, he also was not going hard. So maybe he just didn't use whatever like their best equipment is. But he, he almost looked like he was wearing ankle socks, which I just thought was kind of funny. When you look at the guys on Quickstep, it's like they're definitely passing this limit a bit, I think. But, uh, you know, everyone is going to take as big of an advantage as they can get. So... For sure, uh, those little things, they, they do make a difference. And the other interesting thing is, like, I noticed that I saw on TV that Remco rode, like, a 60-tooth chain ring today. That's, that's correct. So that's yeah. pretty crazy. Uh, that's gigantic. Um, but, yeah, then you get a, a smoother, you get a straighter chain line, which, you know, can save, apparently, a few watts. So, so yeah, it's, it's interesting. Larry, just before we conclude this part, a word on your teammate Ben O'Connor's time trial today. I thought it was one of his, certainly one of his better time trials, a very good performance. 
Yeah, I definitely think uh, they'll be happy with that, you know. Um, uh, I think, you know, he probably won't be so happy with how he's been climbing the last few days in the race, but hopefully he'll get better over the course um, of the Vuelta. And I think he'll probably take a lot of confidence from today's time trial because, yeah, it was a good performance. And, uh, yeah, to be 12th and not too far down and potentially a bit less optimized than some of those guys at the front, uh, yeah, that's, uh, that's definitely something he can take some confidence in. Shoot, shoot at l'arrière du peloton, cycling podcast, team car, the back of the pack, please. That's Seb PK, the voice of Radio Tour, and this is Lionel here to tell you that this episode is sponsored by GCN Plus, and all of our UK listeners can get 25% off an annual GCN Plus subscription. Head to gcn.eu slash cyclingpod to subscribe. We'll put that link in the show notes as well to make it easy for you. And as the Vuelta enters its second full week... Well, GCN Plus is the place to watch the race without missing a single thing because all of the three Grand Tours this season have been live and ad-free with no interruptions, so you won't miss a thing. And, well, if you're unable to tune in live, you can watch the on-demand highlights or even full-stage replays if you want. And the thing that elevates the GCN Plus coverage is, of course, the breakaway hosted by Orla Shenoui, who also hosts the cycling podcast Feminine, of course, and she is joined by a rolling car of experts to analyze the racing including Dan Lloyd, Sean Kelly, Adam Blythe, Robbie McEwen all of whom have been on the cycling podcast at some point or another and of course when the Vuelta ends that might bring the curtain down on the Grand Tours for 2022 but the racing goes on because there's all year round live racing on GCM Plus because they cover the road, track and cyclocross seasons so there are still the Autumn Classics to come, the UCI and Super Prestige Cyclocross Series and then of course before we know it the 2023 road season there's also an incredible archive of films currently an exclusive collection of welter films is on gcn plus and there are over 130 other films available on demand with new releases every week so gcn plus is your ultimate cycling destination for pictures of course i mean audio where else would you go other than the cycling podcast all our listeners can save 25% off an annual GCN plus subscription head to gcn.eu slash cycling pod to subscribe el ritmo de la vuelta the rhythm of the vuelta Ritmo de la Vuelta, our daily walk of shame through the musical annals of the Vuelta and its official songs, our flip-flops caked in disco filth and our spirits high on Alcapops. Today, Larry, we're going back to 2002. Why? Uh, because one of the big stories of this Vuelta so far has been the emergence of Juan Ayuso. He spent much of his youth in the province of Alicante, incidentally, where we are today. He also spent a few years in Atlanta in the United States. And... Juan Ayuso was born while the 2002 Vuelta was taking place. The official anthem that year was Que el ritmo no pare. So the rhythm doesn't stop by Mexican songstress Patricia Manterola. 
Incidentally, she also recorded it, an alternative version of this song, Que el fútbol non pare, so the football doesn't stop, for the 2002 World Cup. Manterola first soared to prominence in a group called Garibaldi, which, as we know, has also been the name, the official name of the Giro d'Italia roadbook since the 1960s. Now, we're going to get to the race now, Larry, and you need to buckle up. This is long and it's outrageous. The Vuelta that year started in Valencia with Once winning a 24.6-kilometre time trial and their leader, Joseba Belocchi, taking the gold jersey. After four consecutive Italian stage wins, Belocchi lost his lead to Oscar Sevilla of Kelme on the climb to La Pandera, where La Vuelta will return this Saturday. Kelme's lineup that year featured a Vuelta debutant, Alejandro Valverde, a 27-year-old Basque named Aitor Gonzalez was also hit, losing his wealth of virginity for the team in green and white that year. And Gonzalez caused an upset, an upset by winning stage 10, a time trial in Córdoba, on the day of Juan Ayuso's birth. Sevilla remained in the gold jersey, but Gonzalez had now emerged as a rival, as much as a teammate. Tensions indeed rose on stage to the Angliru when Gonzalez attacked with Heras on his wheel. Uh, leaving Sevilla in their wake and launching Heras towards the gold jersey. The following day, Kelme felt compelled to stage a conciliatory, clearly awkward handshake between Sevilla and Gonzalez for the Vuelta's photographers. Incidentally, Sevilla wasn't the only agreed party at the end of the Angliru stage. David Miller was so furious about the treacherous conditions and his three crashes on the stage that he ceremoniously removed his race number as he crossed the line. He'd been ninth on general classification, but was deemed not to have finished the stage. Heras went into the final day time trial with a one-minute, eight-second lead over Gonzalez and was sensationally, emphatically overhauled. Spanish cycling was lacking a matador like Aitor Gonzalez, who's fast, very fast in TTs, who's also fast, very fast on uphill finishes, and who's no slouch in the mountains. After his exhibition at the Vuelta, the most appropriate nickname for him might be I-Terminator, wrote Carlos Arribas in El País. Alas, a lucrative move to Fasabortolo signalled the start of a descent almost as vertiginous as his rise with weight problems, a positive test for steroids, retirement and then arrest for assault, cocaine trafficking, property fraud and in 2016 the attempted robbery of a mobile phone store. A final footnote that I should mention, Kelme, the sportswear manufacturer that sponsored Gonzalez's team, was founded and is still based in Elche, where tonight's or today's TT started. That was 2002, Larry. Um, long ago. Feels yeah. like very long ago. A year when the G- I mean, we had, we had something similar with the 2002 Giro. We recapped that a couple of years ago. And this really was, I would say 2002 was close to the Nadia. Um, for professional cycling. I mean, the, the Giro and the pink jersey was kicked out for a positive test in the first week. Uh, Simone tested positive for cocaine and he blamed it on a Peruvian lozenge. Casagrande was booted out for literally booting Freddy Garcia out, at a, well, booting him off the road at a King of the Mountain sprint. And there were two arrests, two positive tests for EPO. Heady, giddy times, Larry. Well, it sounds like they had a bit more fun than we did uh, these days. <laughs> <laughs> I think they might. I think they might. Um, were you following? Were you following professional cycling back in two thousand two, Larry? Uh, no, I wasn't even really riding a bike in two thousand two. So at least that doesn't make me feel that old that like Valverde was racing by then. Um, but yeah, uh, I think in two thousand two, two thousand three was my first year really like riding, getting into racing. So I was like yeah, twelve in two thousand two. So. 
Larry, we mentioned, well, I mentioned Juan Ayuso there. Obviously, we, well, we talked a lot about him on the podcast in the, um, in the last few months. And how much, how much hype is there within the bubble of the peloton about him? Or how much do you know about him? Um, I was laughing because when you said, yeah, he speaks English really well, I was thinking the only time I've heard him speak English is when he yelled at me. So, uh, so yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but, yeah, I mean, you know, um, there's always hype with these young guys. And I think after Remco, it's like everyone was kind of like, yeah, whatever, we'll see. You know, like, uh, because, like, I think everyone kind of, like, stopped worrying so much about this hype, uh, you know, in the last years, because it's like all these, you know, there's this, I don't know how you say his name, Sian or Kian Oitebrooks, yeah. like, yeah, you know, there's like the this guy, there's that him. guy, there's, now there's 30 guys who are hyped, so there's not like, you know, a, a whole ton of talk, but yeah, I mean, I think everyone's like, wow, like, I think Ayuso probably outperformed some of our expectations this year, like, he, he has been impressive, um, but yeah, you know, I think he's he's maybe a little bit less friendly than some of the other guys in the bunch. So um, for that, I think, uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't know uh, if he's made the best impression on some guys, but off of the bike, he seems like a friendly enough guy. So when I was in Andorra for that training camp, I ran into him and yeah, he seemed like a friendly enough guy off the bike. So hard to, hard to say uh, the differences between in the bunch and off. You can't, so. you, can't you can't row back now. L- Larry, That's fine. tomorrow morning, tomorrow, tomorrow morning, Warbass slams arrogant. Yeah, so exactly. Tune in. Exactly. <laughs> um, Larry, just before we move on, on these these proteges, prodigies rather, um, it's been a trend in cycling over the last few years. Your team, AZ2R, and French teams in general have been accused by or criticised uh, for not blooding young riders sooner it's still there's still been a reluctance this applies to movistar in spain as well um, they they have been quite slow to to get on this train i mean you've had some very promising young riders like clement champoussin for example who was hyped up in france but he was hyped up at age 22 23 right. uh, an age um, by which time by which you know the these guys will have accumulated Ayuso will have accumulated you know six or seven grand tours perhaps yeah well I mean I can tell you that's very much changing because like Vincent's really into the kids now so you know I'm pretty sure our team like most of the guys they've signed for next year are going to be neo pros so um, that's like you know there's definitely a huge push so he's really really into the young guys now so maybe it just took them a few years to sort of follow that trend but you know, I think the one thing they realized is, um, you know, they started to lose some of these really big talents from CCF. Like you saw Mateo Jorgensen was on CCF. Uh, you know, I think that yeah. kind of hurt them a bit. That's because the Sh- that's, that's the Schombury feeder team, isn't exactly. it? Exactly. Sorry. Yeah. yeah, that's like the development team of AG2R. Um, so, you know, I think then, you know, there's um, there's like a numerous, I'm trying to think of some of the other guys, but, uh, oh, Kevin Genietz, uh there's... Um, there's really a lot of young guys who were on Chambry. Also, um, the guy on Kofidis, small guy, I forget his name. Oh, Zang? No, 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 no. Um, uh, oh, um, uh, Rocha? Rocha, right. Lafay. Yeah, uh, Remy Rochas and Lafay, actually, both of them were on CCF. So, you know, I think there's this thing, they're like, oh, wow, we really have missed some of these big talents. And, and so now they're like going sort of the opposite direction. Um, and they're really focusing on the youth. 
um, which, you know, that's scary for some of the guys who are getting less yeah. young every year like me, but, um, you know... It's okay. It's like, Larry, you only have to, when they, when they get their stagiaire gigs, you just have to bully them. Yeah, for exactly, of, for exactly. Weeks, I just know. need to put them down and, uh, yeah, make sure they know that I'm the boss. Call them, but call them, call them ghosts, phantoms. Exactly. Um, but, yeah, so actually, you know, I think the reason on our team it's been a bit like that in the past was um, the head of Chambéry, he really believes that um, the young guys need time to develop, not just as riders, but as human beings. And so he doesn't want to send someone who's not like mentally ready to be a pro yet to the pros. So for him, he really wanted most of the guys to do four years under 23, and uh, if not, like three at the minimum. So um, I think that's kind of where the trend came from, at least with our team. And now they're realizing like, that can't be the case anymore because otherwise they'll get snatched up by other teams. So um, they're definitely changing. And I think FDJ is changing as well. As you see, they signed like seven guys from their continental team. So um, yeah, I think French teams are moving I mean, in the direction like that now. Yeah, interesting. I thought it was an interesting point on the podcast Nicholas Van Looy made a few days ago that he was actually speaking to a director and manager of Juan Ayuso's, well, sort of under-16 team, um, I think it was, and this gentleman was was maligning the the influence this new wave has been having on on young juniors and and even younger because they think that if they haven't made it to the world tour or close to the world tour by the age of nineteen, twenty, twenty one, that maybe it's a bit of a vain pursuit and they should yeah. look elsewhere for a career. Yeah, I think it's yeah. it's scary because you know when I turned pro, it was like really normal to do all your years under twenty three. And even like doing three and then going pro was like, oh, wow, you're young, you know? So uh, that's really changing. And yeah, I mean, I've even heard um, from some people that agents are signing riders at like 13 years old now, which is just unreal. So, uh, and you know, like they're maybe even having pre-contracts with world tour teams uh, at that kind of age. So, I mean, that's ridiculous. And so I think at some point the UCI is going to have to do something about that, you know? Um, what it is, I don't know, but I, I, I think it wouldn't be bad to like, Maybe just to have a rule that like guys have to do, I don't know, one year under 23 or like that. They can't have an agent like younger than 17, you know, things like that. I just think like I think it would be good if they protected some of these young guys, because like I was mentioning about this um, director, I think like it is true. Like these guys, maybe physically they're ready, but like the mental burden of being a professional cyclist is. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's big. So, um, especially imagine if you're like a American or something and you have to come over here and live on your own. You're not like going home to mom and dad's house, uh, after the races. So, um, so yeah, I think it's tough. Uh, but I think maybe we'll see some, some kind of rules going in there in the next years. But, uh, but yeah, it's hard because you see these guys, uh, they're performing like insane, insanely well. So, uh, obviously teams are going to want to sign these young guys. Uh, but yeah, we'll see what happens. Well, Larry, this leads us nicely onto our Encuentro del Día with a gentleman who has certainly, in the last 10 days or so, if he didn't already, learnt to recognise the value of youth. And that is the Quickstep Alpha Vinyl team manager, head honcho Patrick Lefebvre, um, who was tucking into a, 
a, what looked like a frozen pizza um, <laughs> just before his riders started going off this afternoon. Very uncharacteristic for Patrick Lefebvre. Usually you picture him dining at a Michelin-starred restaurant um, with a napkin <laughs> tucked into his shirt. But no, he was sitting on a cooler box eating some awful modern cheese and tomato monstrosity. Oh. Um, Pat, any, had any, but just before we go to Patrick... Um, Larry, any have you ever had any encounters with Patrick? No, I actually haven't. So uh, yeah, I don't have like any real experience with him other than reading his interviews, <laughs> which are always, which is generally colourful, generally, generally spiced with with zingers and, exactly. and barbed and, and and sort of barbed com- barbed comments and broadsides and and things that are designed to provoke. Well, let's see if there was any of that today. Take it away, Rob. El encuentro del día, the meeting of the day. Well, Padre, it's going rather well so far, isn't it? Is it living up to your expectations? Well, from certainly looking at Remco and how he's going. Well, we knew he was strong. He did a lot of sacrifice to to come to the start of the Vuelta. It's totally different. Uh, you cannot compare it to what happened last year. First of all, before you ask this question. And, uh, that was question two, that was. Well, you can't forget this already. <laughs> and, yeah, he surprised uh, us, maybe himself also a little bit. But I'm very glad because, uh, you know, in the, in the pelotons, like, yeah, Rebkev is a poor, good rider, but uh, steep uphill, he always has to drop. And three days in a row now, he dropped the others. And I said uh, to myself, this is a good thing. So everybody wants to shut up now. He obviously wants to be a Grand Tour rider, um, but he's got so many options because he can do so many different things. I mean, have you always been of the, of the opinion that he would eventually become what well, we've seen in the first 10 days? Well, from the, from the start of, of his career off, uh, we, were, we were pointing on this, that he was a, a big, big tour rider. And uh, then unfortunately it happened what happened and he, he could also win Monday races uh, a little bit unexpected. When you saw what he, if he wins, if he wins a la grande, you know? mm. saw Brussels Classic, Hof Race, uh, uh, San Sebastian the first year, this year, Liege. It's always quite spectacular mm. if he wins. And a big tour, of course, is different because you have to, to be more prudent with your energy. And that uh, he didn't did he didn't did this the last uh, three days before the rest day, but yeah, fortunately was a rest day today, yesterday and today at uh, Gaza. And well, you, you talk about him um, staying calm, racing calmly, but he also seems generally to be calmer now. Is that just a bit of, a bit of growing up? I mean, he's still very young. Yeah, I think it's experience. Huh? He's 22. Uh, he learned a lot. He learned fast. He's, he's smart. And he see a team who believes in him. Uh, unfortunately for us, we had to, to leave uh, Seri behind us, who is a very important guy. But yeah, we are not alone in this situation, so we're going to not complain too much. And Patrick, yours is a team, I don't need to remind you, I mean, you've got fantastic history in classics, but not that much in Grand Tours. I think four times in the top five in Grand Tours since 2003, since you started with David Tarman. Was it 2003? Um, or two podiums anyway since then um, is that going to matter the lack of heritage in Grand Tours the lack of experience for me for, for Remco and will, uh, it, will it does it does it mean anything 
Well, there's a minute thing, of course, uh, if he can do a podium. Uh, on 22 and a ground tour, some, some of the big riders of champions in the past didn't even start before 23, 24. And now times are changed. Now they're quite younger. If you see Ayuso, Rodriguez, him, Pojacar, uh, fighting to win a grand tour, it's uh, cycling changed a lot. No? But do you think the, the, the fact that most of your staff hasn't had that experience of trying to win a grand tour, do you think that will affect the way things go in the next two weeks? Well, sometimes I have to smile if I hear all these uh, silly things. Because uh, we see, we saw a lot. Did we have a few years ago a team to defend the yellow jersey of Valafarib? No, but we did it for 15 days. So it's always the same. The, the team is also always at the level of the leader. Well, I don't believe in all those uh, stories, uh, not having experience. If somebody has the leader jersey, and friends has a nice expression, l'équipe est toujours à l'auteur de leader. And you see people growing above themselves because they're defending the leader's jersey, they believe in the, the guy who wore it, and you can see it in our team, not only uh, by the riders, but also beside. I'm not afraid of this. The other day you talked about the, the noughts on Julian Alaphilippe's contract. Um, what do you think of his Vuelta Espana so far? Oh, he surprised me because he has no basic. He started the season badly to be sick before the Provence, then he has this terrible crash in Liège. Then he came back uh, after one month, Livigno and uh, Régis Wallon running on the wall of uh, Wii and taking COVID. So uh, there are pleasanter things than uh, uh, doing this parkour. So he came here with a small basic and to, to see which, which stage he could win, eventuality. But now, uh, yeah, he pushed in his role that uh, Remco has the leader's jersey and he's doing well. And for him, it's maybe, again, a good preparation on the world. Science in Sport is supporting the cycling podcast at the 2022 Vuelta España. Science in Sport, fueled by science. Thank you very much to Science in Sport for supporting the cycling podcast. You can get 25% off everything at scienceinsport.com with the discount code SISCP25. And if you go to scienceinsport.com, you can also sort all of the energy products into categories according to when you want to use them, before, during, or after your ride. Just go to the All Products tab and you can find exactly what you're looking for. If you're going for any long rides, I can definitely recommend the Beta Fuel 80, which is a powder which mixes up into a drink and keeps your energy levels topped up because, well, it gives you all of the carbohydrate that you need to get the best out of yourself. And I can also recommend the Beta Fuel Energy Chews to supplement the drink. Uh, the Energy Chews are actually a new one on me, but I've used them for the first time recently. They come in a lemon or orange flavor and uh, they just give you an additional burst of carbohydrate and they're very easy to eat when you're on the bike. Go to scienceinsport.com and use the discount code SISCP25 to get 25% off. Yeah, so I was just interested as as you uh, were interviewing Lefebvre, um, you know, I thought I heard a little bit of a tremble in your voice. So I was kind of wondering if you were scared to ask him that question about the history of the team. Because uh, I don't know, I, I heard a little quiver there. 
Death was definitely not equivalent. Patrick uh, Lefebvre definitely does not intimidate me. I used to do a wine bar with Patrick oh, Lefebvre. On. No, no, he couldn't. You know, I've got broader shoulders than that, Larry. Okay, you okay. Be better than that. Um, yeah. No, he doesn't. I don't, he doesn't intimidate me. As discussed many times on the podcast, I mean, he's someone who. Um, for all his vices, and there are a few, um, he's someone who knows how to, you, you might say, manipulate the media. He certainly knows how to present himself and his team in the media. And it's all very calculated. Some might even say, in certain circumstances, Machiavellian. But he generally does come up with a few good lines. And consequently, the journalist... He's kind of the journalist's guilty pleasure, um, or one yeah. of the journalist's guilty pleasures. There, there are a few of those, I must admit. Um, Larry, let's look ahead. La etapa de mañana, la cena de ayer. Tomorrow's stage, yesterday's food. So, Larry, first of all, la cena de ayer. Well, I did say earlier that well, as the, the barriers are packed onto a lorry um, about two metres from my head and you can probably hear them apologies for those sound effects um, yeah the the meal last night was in a beautiful setting on a swimming pool terrace in Elche uh, I mentioned the fact that Manuel Quinciato was dining next to hers um, with Primoz Roglic's agent Mattia Galli in fact um, what, did, what did we have what did I have I had an arroz de verduras y setas which is kind of a, a paella with only vegetables it's sort of a you know, a, a snowflake paella, um, a paella for people who can't, you know, who can't really deal with the, the proper stuff, which i.e. me. Um, it's a, weak, a weakling's paella. And it was very nice, in fact. And we had, what did we have to drink? Um, we had uh, Ribera. No, we, we had something from uh, Shiraz, a Sira from Castilla Leon, which was excellent as well. Larry, tomorrow's stage, what have we got? So, um, tomorrow is a flat-ish day with a few hills. Uh, it's stage 11, 191.2 kilometers from Alama de Murcia to Cabo de Gata. Um, yeah, it's 1,676 meters of climbing. And I kind of think it's going to be a sprint with a victory by Mads Peterson. Wow. So, despite the fact that Sam Bennett is now out out of the race you think there are enough teams and riders in the peloton sprinters in the peloton for us to get the 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 breakaway coming back presumably late in the day and for there to be a sprint finish yeah i believe that that's that's my uh yeah that's my guess but I, i wouldn't i mean yeah you never know like once you start to get into this far into a grand tour anything can happen and yeah i mean it's going to be a little less sure now that uh um, that uh, Sam isn't in the race anymore, but uh, but yeah, I mean, I guess I guess we'll see. Uh, I, I still think like you know, a team like Trek wouldn't want to give up an opportunity to win a stage like tomorrow. Tomorrow, Larry, is kind of the Alejandro Valverde stage in the sense that we're in Murcia, uh, certainly for the start of the stage. We're also starting outside a huge meat factory called um, El Pozo. Um, Alimentación, um, a company that kind of makes well, a lot of cured meat, um, quite cheap meat. And I got a message from a listener a couple of days ago when we were talking about the environment and we had Luis Angel Mate, the links of Marbella and Gino Maida on talking about their respective initiatives to do with climate change and forest fires. Um, this, the, the, the listener I mentioned, um, reminded me of El Pozo's absolutely appalling record, um, environmental record, um, a lot of, sort of dumping of 
of pig slurry uh, that they've been they've been accused of and um, well there have been Greenpeace protests um, as recently as a few weeks ago there were there were five of their activists were arrested Greenpeace's activists were arrested um, just a few weeks ago outside one of the El Pozo um, factories and we'll be there tomorrow so that's something to look forward to isn't it <laughs> um, the, uh, that reminds me actually there was a rider in the Giro who was the rider in the Giro who are oh, you I, I will remember this um, in a second um, if, if you would like to spend the next 15 seconds talking about cured meats, Larry, I will tell you which, which rider at the Giro used to work in the Italian equivalent of El Pozo, which is Aya, which also makes things like cold turkey and, and ham. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I guess uh, I, I have had uh, um, some El Pozo um, chicken in Turkey when I've been training in Spain before, so... Yeah, I guess uh, I better look into the companies that I'm buying from. Um, and I probably just bought it because it was like the cheapest thing at the supermarket. But maybe I should be a little more uh, concerning with uh, the, the investments I make in my food choices. But It was Davide Gaburo, in fact. Um, we featured him on the podcast talking about his the, the heady days that he spent meatpacking. Um, wow. Larry... On tomorrow's stage, well, you've disappointed me really by predicting a sprint finish because I hoped you were going to say it was it would it would be a breakaway tomorrow. The breakaway would go all the way to the finish, and um, bearing that in mind, I was going to present a convincing case for Fred Wright winning the stage tomorrow because well, well we, we don't have to agree. You know, you can present well, we that. Don't. We don't. This is a democracy. Um, but we've we've all seen and we've almost kind of viscerally, vicariously. Um, experienced this this ongoing struggle of Fred Wright to finally win a Grand Tour stage. He came very close to the Tour de France a couple of times. He's come close here a couple of times. Um, and we've heard in his interviews with us the, the anguish that this is causing him or or the, the, the sort of mental Rubik's Cube, cube that he's trying to master in his head um, knowing that he has it certainly within him to win a stage here. Um, just in that light, before we go on to discuss this and maybe whether you have had any experience of this, Larry, let's hear just another postscript to Fred's latest near-miss a couple of days ago. That was in Cistierna, and the following day, or in fact, no, two days later, in Villa Viciosa, um, Fred and I, well, we held yet another post-mortem as it were each, like each day I get further away from two days ago I just feel a bit feel a bit better I think <laughs> I was uh, yeah I think yeah I, I was gutted so I sort of almost I just didn't want to speak to anyone you know it's, it's one of them <laughs> so on our podcast among people who have never raced by me and someone else we were a little bit critical in the sense we said well obviously you didn't know that what the wind was doing um, but is this symptomatic of riders nowadays being very reliant on information and what they and, and, and how well prepared they are for the stage they think they know what's going to happen on the road all the time and they don't necessarily they're not sort of feeling what the conditions are like is that unfair ah it's a tricky one I I had the I had a good chat with Mads yesterday about it it was, it was really nice. I think it was just a bit of overconfidence, you know. Like I was, I, I'd always back my sprint, especially in that sort of group. And uh, you know, in, in my head, it was, 
it was I kind of it, you know taking away all the all the um, information and everything. I I still probably would have made I would have made still made the same mistake. I think so. The uh, yeah, I, in my head it was a tailwind downhill finish, but it kind of was downhill and then slightly up into a bit of a headwind. So yeah, I, I uh, tailwind versus a headwind that makes a difference of. 100 meters of where you're going to well, no, launch I, a sprint, doesn't it? I think for me it's just a big learning thing because you know, like you, you have the feeling, but you kind of you get that feeling. But I, I looked on the, uh, I just need to make sure I double check the the old ride, the weather, the weather forecast because the wind really did sort of it was, it was behind our backs, but then obviously we kind of turned it into a bit of a yeah. I just that's that's on me. I don't I don't blame anyone for any misinformation. I just was a bit overconfident and uh, and messed it up, but. Ah, there'll be more opportunities, and yeah, you know, it's 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 kind of easy to be confident in a maybe in a smaller race. It's it's a shame I have to take learning in such a big race, but I, yeah, that's that's just the way it goes. I, you know, it's, it's it's a shame it's such a big it was such a big opportunity that I had to learn from. But nah, there's there's more days, and I, I like the world. It's good. It's nice. It's less a lot less stressful than the tour. It's great. Well, Larry. Um, is this something you can relate to? Just the, 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 the kind of intellectual exercise that winning, the challenge of trying to win a bike race becomes? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I think uh, it's happened to me, you know, even in the Vuelta before, being in breakaways and stuff like that, where you, you have to think when you... Well, first you have to worry about getting into the breakaway, but then once you're there, you have to think, like, how can I beat all the guys around me? And so I think for a rider like me, it's a bit more complicated because uh, if I'm going to the line with a few other guys, it's likely that I will be beating a sprint. So, um, you know, I think a guy like Fred Wright, uh, it's somewhat simpler because as long as no one gets away from him, he has a really good chance of winning the sprint. Like he said, uh, you know, he has a lot of confidence in his sprint at the end of a, the end of a race like that. Um, but, yeah, it's, it's challenging because, you know, you, you don't know what the other guys are going to do and you know i think like in the scenario he explained potentially his directors could have filled him in a little bit more telling him you know maybe there's like a slight uphill whatever um but i do think it's something that you can overanalyze so we have so much data available to us now uh with velo viewer and all these things uh you know there's like weather apps there's you know all, all this kind of stuff google maps google earth that I think almost sometimes it can get us into traps that we rely less on our intuition and, and more on just the data. So I actually think it's kind of good that he w was not as informed as he could have been because I, I almost think that means like he really was relying on his intuition and maybe didn't pay off this time, but another time it will. Uh, it's interesting. His teammate, Eduardo Zambanini, the young Italian, a couple of days ago, he was in the break on the state of Les Praeres. He eventually finished uh, third. And I think everything malfunctioned for him that day, radio, computer, and so on and so forth. And he wrote the whole thing on instinct. And well, he was, ve he was very emotional at the finish line. Uh, that maybe had more to do with the fact that he's riding his first Grand Tour and he was sort of overwhelmed with it. But, you know, who knows? Maybe... Maybe his senses were slightly um, were slightly kind of heightened and um, were slightly more more attuned to what was going on around him because you know he was very much in the moment and he couldn't he couldn't turn it into that intellectual puzzle that we're talking about based based on um, what he what he'd read what he'd prepared what his directors were telling him. 
Yeah, I mean, that's, that's definitely possible. I think sometimes you get a bit stressed when you have all these different things uh, coming from all directions, and especially in the radio. You know, if you're, in, if you're in a race, there's not a whole lot they can tell you. For, for example, if you're like, yeah, maybe they can give you a little bit of details about the course, but they could also tell you that of the car. So, um, you know, I think sometimes all the yelling in the radio can only serve to distract you more than, uh, than help sometimes. So, you know, it's like they get so excited in the car that they think if they say like, go, 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 ale, 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 that like it's going to make you go faster. But in the end, it might just distract you. So, uh, so yeah, I know... Um, in the past, I've taken out the radio a couple times uh, when there's you've too done much him, talking you've done going Salaire. on. But you've done a Mark yeah, Larry, Larry mean, Warbus, we've all done Larry it. Warbus, Larry Warbus doesn't want to be like Mark Soler when he grows up because he's already no. grown up and he's already Mark Soler. Oh, no. No, no. <laughs> Only Mark sometimes. Sta- Mark Soler is staying at our hotel um, at the moment it will be again tonight so maybe I don't know maybe I'll invite Mark Celeste for a non-alcoholic cocktail tonight I'd love to <laughs> chew the breeze chew the um, shoot the breeze chew the breeze shoot the breeze with Mark Celeste um, I don't know over in a, maybe yeah. in a non-alcoholic alco pop um, Larry I think I, I think that just about concludes the night's entertainment um, I'm going to thank you and we will rendezvous again later in the week I believe I believe you're you're inked in for Friday Absolutely, yeah. You'll be training between now and then. You're very much I back will. on the road, aren't you? You're you're, you're working through the gears at, at the moment, and um, I am feeling pretty good. You told me. Yeah, yeah, feeling pretty good. So we'll see. I do a scan in about a week. So hopefully, uh, you know, the bone is stronger than it was before, and uh, yeah, I'll just be smashing it back at races soon. <laughs> and if not, you can become a full-time podcaster. Yeah, that's paid. true too. That'll we, be a we, nice. We, consolation prize if not we we pay at least two euros an hour Larry Larry thank you very much and um, well thank you to all of the listeners as well and you'll be hearing from me again tomorrow and from Larry later in the week so hasta luego yeah thanks everyone the cycling podcast was created in 2013 by Richard Moore Daniel Freed and Lionel Byrne Stay